right, welcome to day 87 of our journey through Scripture. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at Numbers chapter 23, verse 27, all the way through the end of chapter 25, as well as Psalm 38 and Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 35. Okay, Numbers 23, we're catching up um, as we've been in the last few days with Balaam, who has been summoned by Balak, the king of Moab, and his cohorts to come and curse Israel. Um, and, uh, and Balaam is, has given two oracles that despite Balak's, uh, well, much to Balak's chagrin, let's say, uh, have actually been, um, words of blessing towards Israel. And, uh, this is not going the way that Balak hoped that it would. He thought that Balaam would be much more mercenary in this, that he would be um, uh, be willing to do whatever Balak is paying him to do. Uh, but Balaam, of course, is committed to only um, saying what Yahweh allows him to say, what Yahweh reveals to him. Um, and so he's given two of these these blessing oracles, and now it's time for another one. So the uh, uh, they go to another place. Each time they go to a different place. Uh, once again, seven altars are constructed, and seven bulls and seven rams are sacrificed on them. But unlike those other times, uh, you don't have Balaam going off and uh, kind of doing his own thing. And in fact, here in um, in verse one, we see that there's uh, we we see what he was act- actually has been doing. We get a little bit more information. Um, uh, filled in for us, and it said that he did he did not go at uh, as at other times to look for omens, um, and uh, indeed we saw we've seen this notion of uh, of omen reading uh, come up already in this. Uh, we saw, for example, in uh, chapter twenty two, verse seven, uh, when they came out for him, when the the messengers from Balak went out to him, it said they had the fees for divination. Uh, and then you might recall yesterday in the the uh, so the second of his oracles, there uh, in verse twenty-two, <clears throat> I'm sorry, not twenty-two, verse twenty-three. Uh, part of it was there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. So uh, there's there's a bunch of details here that aren't filled in for us. But what seems to be the case is that Balaam had been going, as was his practice, and. Uh, perhaps observing Israel while looking for omens, uh, omens uh, of, of uh, positive nature or negative nature, um, <clears throat> some kind of way of, of hearing back from God. This is, uh, again, a common practice in the ancient Near East, um, and in, in some cultures it was trusted even more so than, uh, say, uh, a prophecy or alleged prophecy, and... Um, and, and and so he's doing this, and he doesn't receive. Just to be clear, he's not receiving omens, but he's 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 looking for them. So he goes out to do one thing, and God decides to do another. God decides to give him this oracular revelation, as opposed to communicating with him through omens, which, for the most part, the God of Israel does not do. Um, so he doesn't do that this time, and um, instead, it, all we're told is that he lifted up his eyes and sees Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God comes upon him, and then he speaks. And uh, again, this is a very this is a this is a positive oracle, um, the oracle of Balaam the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. 
And so God is opening his eye. Uh, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. Uh, so Balaam sees. Balaam is is the seer right now. And uh, and this is just straight up. If, if you thought the other ones were kind towards Israel, this one even more so. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by ya- that that Yahweh has planted, like cedar trees beside the water. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king, there we have kingship again mentioned, shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Um, God brings him out of Egypt, and it is for him like and is for him like the horns of a wild ox. Okay, we saw that uh, that imagery already already used um, in previous oracle. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him? And then you have something that sounds almost extremely similar to God's initial promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Um, So obviously, the implication being, of course, I mean, not only is this an affirmation of what God had spoken to Abraham all way back when, but this is a, 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 a very solemn rebuke against Balak, who's who's bent on cursing Israel, but in cursing Israel, that will cause him to be cursed. And uh, interestingly, rather than being like, all right, you know what, um, I need to be among those who bless Israel, uh, Balak doubles down once again on his animosity towards them, on his hatred towards them, and um, and kind of starts to to freak out on him. Um, he's 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 upset, of course, over this, and um, uh, he, he's basically like, "All right, you're, you why don't you return to your land? This is not going as I wanted to." I told you I would honor you, um, but I'm not going to. This is this is ridiculous. This is not what I what I thought this was going to be, and um, and Balaam tells him, you know, I I told you even if you gave me your house full of silver and gold, I'm not able to go beyond the word of Yahweh. Um. So and then and then as. As they're talking in the context of this conversation, another oracle comes upon him, kind of like a bonus round for for Balak, just as positive as uh, as as the previous one. And um, and here you actually have um, the real a real focus on kingship, um, as as I've been noting, these oracles do have an eye towards the future king in Israel. Which is important for us to note, of course, as we read this, because that contributes to the flow of Christology, to our flow of, of, of understanding of Jesus, who comes as the fulfillment and the ultimate king of God's people. And, uh, and we see this in verse 17. Uh, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So it's going to be a while. Um, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Okay, so this star. Stars in the Bible 
uh, from time to time, not completely, but from time to time, uh, represent uh, kingly authority, kingship. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll see this more as we go through the Bible. Um, a good reference for this would be Isaiah 14, 12. Um, so uh, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter, clearly a reference to, to ruling, shall rise out of Israel. And, uh, and, then it, and then you have the, the way in which this scepter will crush the enemies of God. It will crush the forehead of Moab. Moab first and foremost, the king of Moab is trying to elicit this, these curses. These, he's trying to do that. Shall break down the sons of Sheth. I'm, I, I'm always at a loss as to why they translate that Sheth there, or they transliterate it Sheth there. Um, I mean, that is the pronunciation, but elsewhere this, this name is written in English, Seth, uh, one of the sons of Noah. Um, and so this would be this would be those who are considered descendants of his. Um, Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also. Edom and Seir are pretty much the same thing. Um, recall Edom's attitude towards Israel as they came into the uh, as they came into the Transjordan, and um, and and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. There you have kingship again. Um, and then you have the, a rebuke of several other um, people groups, um, uh, the Amalekites, for example, the, as well as the Canaanite, the Kenites, um, and some others that are are a little difficult to identify. Asher, it is it is tempting to identify that with, of course, Assyria, which back then is called Asher. Um, uh, although Asher, that that's going to become a foe of Israel much later in Israel's history. Um, and Eber, it's unclear exactly uh, who is meant by Eber. But the point is clear that uh, Israel has a bright future that God has in store for them, that God, God wants them uh, to be here, and he wants them, and he is going to raise up a king. And, and the, kind of the tragic thing for all of these nations is that th- their it's not as if it's like their fate to be enemies of God, right? Like they have a choice. They can join themselves to what God is doing. They can become those among those who, who would bless Israel. We certainly have examples of, of individuals in foreign nations like that in, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Uh, but they are dead set on being opposed to Israel, on having their own way. And, um, it's it's kind of like the way in which the kingdom of God confronts any one of us, where uh, we've got our own thing and our own agenda, and we are fully committed to it, and then God comes in, and he says, you know what, this is how things are going to be. This is what I am doing in the world. This is what it means to follow me, what it means to know me. And uh, for many of us, and I guess all of us at some point, right, that, that comes and conflicts with our own will. It conflicts with our own plans. And, um, and we, we can choose to be on the side of the Lord, or we can choose to be on the side of his enemies. Um, and uh, that choice is, is theirs as well, um, all the way back uh, this, this far in history as Israel is moving into the land. Then we have this tragic event that happens in chapter 25, um, where we've seen God give these favorable oracles about Israel, um, 
but these very people whom the Lord has just designated as the objects of his blessing now go and have their first real foray into the worship of foreign gods. Um, that's not to say that the Golden Calf episode was not horrendous, that it was, not, but but even there, uh, it's as I as I noted, it it kind of seemed to be that they were still trying to worship the Lord. They're just do they're doing it in a way that they're really not supposed to, in a way that is abhorrent to God. But um, but at least you know they're they're proclaiming a feast to Yahweh. They're uh, it, it's not entirely clear that they're that they're just like let's just go worship some other god. But here, um, <clears throat> they begin. It says to whore with the daughters of Moab. So there is some kind of um, sexual attraction going on here between apparently a large number of Israelite men and the the women who dwell in this area. And they begin to um, become uh, participants in the sacrifices of a local deity there, who is called in the past in this text uh, Baal of Peor. Uh, you could call this god Baal. That's the typical way of pronouncing it, but it would be in Hebrew Baal. Um, and Baal becomes a serious. Um, uh, temptation for worship, like a serious temptation for the people of Israel throughout their history. <clears throat> um, you kind of see it ebb and flow. Sometimes uh, worship of Baal is more popular, and sometimes um, it, it fades. But this is really the first encounter of Israel with this deity. Um, probably a local version of it. Um, you know, so Baal of Peor. Peor is the name of the city. So he's the Baal as he is worshipped at at Peor. Uh, even elsewhere in Numbers, we see other kind of versions of Baal. Uh, Baal Meon we will encounter. We'll also encounter Baal Zaphon, Baal of the north. Um, and yeah, so these are like Baal as he is worshipped in, in uh, various locales. Um, and the anger of the Lord is, of course, ang- um, uh, um, aroused at this. And he makes it clear to Moses that something must be done, um, and uh, it's I, this is um, another example where there's just some details that are not filled in for us. We have like various pieces of the response. Um, so the Lord tells Moses to hang the chiefs of Israel in the sun, uh, which probably means that they've already been dealt with they've that that though the ringleaders of this have been have been killed um although the text doesn't you know tell us that that that's the case uh, but that's the the idea of um of hanging a body after it's been killed is um this kind of a very extreme example of uh denunciation of uh, this this individual did something uh, very high-handedly against the lord and um and this is this is the the consequence for for this um he um, so that's what the lord says and then moses tells various of the judges that that each of them have a responsibility to um to take care of this um and then we also find that there's a plague that the Lord unleashes on the people, but we find out about it kind of in hindsight, right? Like it's not until verse eight, which is um, apparently after the plague had already stopped. Um, so yeah, there's there's just a few like jumbled parts here, um, but we can 
piece together that there was, you know, this is a great act of idolatry. Um, if we're taken aback by the the consequences, like like what happens as a result, you know, death results, as, and, and pa- apparently a lot, right? Like it says, twenty four thousand had been killed as by the time that this is over. Um, again, we just need we we need to keep our eye on the fact that um, this is uh, that that God is doing something to overcome this the. the the, the utter sinfulness and evil of humanity that has been unleashed on the world, right? Like he's, this is uh, God acting to do something about that. This is God initiating his plan to bless all the nations of the earth through the offspring of Abraham, and here are the very people who are supposed to be doing that, and they are worshiping another god. Um, it is because of the seriousness of this, the severity of the sin, that the that the punishment for it, the consequences for it, are are so severe. Um, this is this is not God playing games, and um, so of course we have seen uh, judgments of God in Scripture before, um, uh, but and and it's always very sobering when we do. Uh, but it reminds us that that is a reality, right? The wages of sin is death, and that death comes to us all, and it is only through the act of God's grace that we are delivered from that, that we have hope beyond that. Uh, but it, indeed, it is God's prerogative to decide when that is going to happen, how he is going to meet that out, and, and eventually all human beings do face this. Um, so, it's just a little bit of perspective when we read about these great acts of judgment, um, and um, it, it is also time for kind of a checking of our hearts as well, right, to see, um, uh, are we disturbed by the sin, or are we disturbed by the judgment? And if we're, if if the only thing we take about the, take from this is, wow, that seems like pretty harsh, um, then we're not on the wavelength of where God is on this, that God treats sin ex- exceedingly seriously, and um, and when we, it sometimes helps to kind of, I sometimes say, look backwards, think about it backwards, right, where um, it's not, uh, I look at my sin and then say, ah, what's the punishment I think, that, or what's the, you know, what do I think is the fitting judgment for this? Uh, no, we really don't. Un- we don't. We we're not in the position to make that call. Rather, we look. You look can look at the judgment, right? That's why I say looking backwards at it, and say, "Oh my gosh, my sin is deserving of that. It must be much more serious than I, in my limited capacity and my creaturely and sinful capacity, am able to tell." And so. Even if sin in our own eyes is not does not seem to be that grave, when we when when we get a glimpse of God's judgment, we get an idea of how grave it is in God's eyes. Um, that those whom He has created in His image, whom He loves, would then become the objects of His wrath. Um, another another part of this is that while the people are weeping at the tent of meeting, so the people are already in mourning when this is happening, um, this guy comes and brings a Midianite woman into his tent in the sight of all Israel. So they're, they're, they're weeping at, at, at the, at, 
at their own sin and and at the the tragedy the, the 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 tragic judgment that has ensued as a result of it and in the midst of it there's this one guy that's like still still like into it you know he still is is going to take this midianite woman bring him into his tent and um and there's this one guy one of the sons of Eliezer who is now the high priest Phineas he goes and he kills both of them with a spear um again a very violent act um but also by by viewing it we can accuse us into the to the seriousness uh, of this sin to how much it mattered that the people of God would indeed worship him and worship him alone this is this is God's rescue plan for the entire creation and if the people who are supposed to be in the middle of it are just wantingly and high-handedly short-circuiting that uh, brazenly in the eyes of all then um, then that is something that um, that that must be dealt with and this is the way at this point in history that they did dealt deal with it um, Phineas actually becomes a bit of a model of of zeal for the Lord um, in the New Testament we sometimes read we read about like Simon the zealot uh, Paul refers to himself before he came to Christ as as very zealous for the law um, for those who used that kind of language, um, Phineas was a bit of an example. Um, he, he was uh, Elijah will also become this. He he also uh, kills um, a, a large number of prophets of Baal, and this idea of being quote unquote jealous or zealous it just happened to rhyme in English uh, for the Lord um, takes on this meaning where you are so passionate about the things of God that you're even willing to kill for it. And we see that in Paul. Not saying that that's a good thing, that like everybody who follows in their suit is justified in doing so, but that's to say that Phineas does become kind of a model for this. And God um, shows his approval of Phineas um, uh acting as the instrument of his judgment, acting as the instrument through whom um, this evil will be purged from Israel, and gives him the perpetual priesthood. And so Phineas, that line will now be the line of high priests in Israel. And uh, this, these, um, those in this line um, eventually will also, in the Bible, you will also find them called the Zadokites, Z A. D-O-K, um, Zadok being the um, the high priest in the line of Phineas during the reign of King David. Um, but this line is then set apart as this is where the high priesthood will remain. This will be a perpetual covenant between God and the offspring of Phineas. Um, interestingly, also in verse 12, note, or verse 13, note that the, the, the thing that Phineas does here in, in, in killing this man and and the woman whom he had brought again presumably all involved in idolatry as well right these relationships that they were whoring with moabite women and they invited them to sacrifice and now here he 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 brings a midianite woman into his tent uh, the midianites and the moabites seem to be um kind of like coupled together here uh, but in in doing this it said that he it says that he made atonement for the people of Israel, which is an unusual use of the word atonement, right? Usually we see that connected with sacrifices, particularly 
uh, sin offerings, guilt offerings, sometimes burnt offerings, things like that. Um, but uh, you will do also have that language for um, used for other things that appease the wrath of God. Uh, we saw that also in chapter 16 with the bringing of the censers throughout the camp, the censers of incense. Um, chapter 16, verses 46 and 47 say that in so doing, Aaron made atonement for the people. This is during the rebellion of Korach. Um, so that language does get used, and, and here we have that kind of like basic idea of like a cleansing of people from their sin, which affects the uh, propitiation of God, the turning away of his wrath. And the passage ends with the Lord telling uh, Moses, uh, harass the Midianites and strike them down. Harass is, I think, a weird translation for that, right? It's not like harassment like we would think of it, right? But it's the idea that they are to be um, against the Midianites, the Midianites um, having been involved in this act of idolatry and clearly being somebody who is trying, uh, or a group of people who is bent on drawing Israel away from worship. You could kind of see the the reason why this is coupled um, with the uh, stories about Balak. Uh, okay, not only are they, they happening um, at the same time, and this uh, generally the same actors are involved, right? We've got Moab involved and, st- and stuff like that, and it's, it appears to be at about the same time. But you have the idea of a foreign air adversary attempting to uh, derail uh, what God is doing, what God is doing through Israel. Um, it's a uh, it's a little bit um, confusing that you have Midianites and Moabites conflated. Like technically, these are different people groups. Um, and um, uh, Jacob Milgram, in his commentary on Numbers, actually has um, a helpful comment about this. He writes that this episode may reflect the period when Moab was part of the Midianite Confederation, um, uh, referencing Numbers 10.29 and 22 verse 4, which also hint at this, that embraced all of the Transjordan as its protectorate. Um, We see this also in Joshua 13.21. Uh, when Israel conquered Sihon's territory, it severed the king's highway. So when they went to war against um, the Ammonites, right, like they take the territory. And so Israel is in possession of this highway. Remember the king's highway, they wanted to travel on it through the Transjordan. It goes from south to north, north to south. Um, but now that the Israelites hold that territory in the north, um, they are they threaten the Midianites' hold on the spice trade that would have run up and down that. So uh, Midian uh, seems to have um, a common cause to oppose Israel along with Moab. And so that appears to be why um, they these uh, two groups are almost conflated here. Okay, so that's it for... Um, for numbers chap uh for, for our time in numbers today let's go to psalm 38 psalm 38 okay like many of the other psalms we've been looking at is a psalm of david um this the superscript for the memorial offering is um a, a bit of a liberty on the uh, taken on the part of the english standard version which i'm uh, typically read from in this um Lehazkir, okay, is what it says in Hebrew for uh, remembering, for the for the the memorial, for the remembrance, or something. It's not clear that this is connected with a certain type of offering, um, uh, so it's just a it's a little bit ambiguous. Um, 
I just note that because sometimes it helps to to be able to plug these psalms into their background, what can be discerned from them. Uh, but I don't think it's uh, it's it's at all clear that Psalm 38 is is connected uh, with some kind of uh, offering ritual. Uh, but the content of the psalm is very sobering. Uh, this appears to be a psalm that where David is grieved because of his own sin and uh, is is acknowledging it before the Lord and is in that place where he is longing for that relationship to be restored. So you, it begins, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Okay, It, it acknowledges that uh, that that he is experiencing God's displeasure. Your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. Um, and there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of your sin. This is indeed what it should feel like when we come to grips with our sin, when we realize uh, what a gulf we have put between ourselves and God. Um my iniquities have gone over my head. They like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. They're like something that's, you know, someone's piling weights on my back. That's what it feels like when, um, when we are being moved to conviction for our sin. Um, talks about his wounds stinking and festering. Again, not because he's righteous and being pursued, but because of my own foolishness. And so I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. Um, Sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble. I'm crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. This is, he has, his sin has made him miserable. Um, And though this sounds terrible, right? Like that's the point where we, we should be when we come to grips with the fact that, that we, um, anytime we realize what we are doing is is against God, and we are at that point we, where we are, um, I say, on the verge of repentance, in the process of repenting. And a couple of verses that I find uh, interesting um, is uh, like verse twelve and following, right? Which which sounds like these psalms again, where it's like I I'm you know your righteous one, I I do right in your eyes, Lord, and save me from my enemies. It sounds like the save me from my enemies is coming, right? Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and and meditate treachery all day long. Um, Like, you know, that, like he's going to call for God to rescue him from them. But, but there's this, this tension there, right? Because, I've been doing things that are unpleasing to the Lord, and so, like, what right do I have to go to him and to look to him for salvation? As David says, um, I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear, in whose mouth are no rebukes. So, so David's at the point where, you know, he's got nothing more to say, and he's just simply going to wait for the Lord. It is for you, O Yahweh, whom I wait for. It's you, O Lord, my God, who will answer me. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, he's read, he says, I'm ready to fall. My pain is before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sins. My, and his foes are surrounding him. He understands he doesn't have the right to be like, God, come do this. Come help me. Um, I, He's in a place of repentance and and basically just prostrating himself before the Lord. 
Um, and it ends with this, this beautiful uh, appeal to God. Do not forsake me, O Yahweh, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Uh, which is encouraging, right? That um, in our sin, we can turn, we can confess, we can prostrate ourselves before God, and we can still appeal to him who is our help um, when we turn from our sin and turn back to him, that he will hear us again, and we do wait on him for his salvation. Okay, let's go to Luke chapter 7. Um, here we have um, um, an incredible story about Jesus going into a village uh, called Nain, and uh, there's the great. Uh, this great crowd is following following him, and when he goes into the town, there's a funeral taking place, and it's a man who's just died and um, leaving behind um, his mother, who is a widow, and this woman who is now uh, destitute. Um, she's um, she's all on her own, and so aside from the fact that this is death, this is also um, a very tragic situation for her to be in. And uh, the Lord sees this happening, and he sees this funeral going on, and he, he, he goes up to her and he tells her not to weep. Imagine what that must have sounded like, like you're telling me not to weep right now. Um, and he goes up and he he touches the beer, the thing that's that's carrying the dead man, and um, it says that the bearers, the people who were carrying the man, stood still, and he says to him, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man, it says, sat up and began to speak, and Jesus brings him to his mother. And this is, um, you know, probably the most incredible thing they've seen so far. And they glorify God, the people there glorify God, and they, they conclude that a prophet is here among us. Uh, keep in mind, these, these are people who are well steeped in the traditions of Elijah and Elisha, whom we will learn about in the books of Kings, um, through whom God did raise the dead on, um, on one or two occasions. And um, so they, they, they conclude that, right? And they, they conclude God has visited his people, not that, right, they're not cued into like the deity of Jesus or, and stuff like that, right? But what they understand is the Lord uh, in the scriptures when the Lord visits his people, it's when God acts on behalf of his people. Um, God is acting through this man powerfully, and the report of this incident then spreads throughout the entire region. Um, <clears throat> meanwhile, John is still in prison, John the Baptist is still in prison. And as we saw um, in, in the other Gospels, um, if from prison, he begins to, I guess, have questions, okay? Here I am, the forerunner of the Messiah, and I'm in prison. I'm languishing in, 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 in prison. Um, and uh, Jesus is supposed to be—John knows Jesus, he knows him well, but he's confused. Is the kingdom of God coming or isn't it? And so he sends messengers, apparently still in some contact with his disciples, and even though he's in prison. Um, are, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And uh, as the people uh, whom he sent are there, Jesus is doing healings. He is uh, casting out evil spirit, uh, spirits. He's bestowing sight on the blind. 
and he tells them, go report these things to John. Go tell them what is happening. Um, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Not only am, am I, uh, are the blind receiving their sight and the lame walking and lepers are being cleansed, deaf are, are, are hearing, uh, the poor have the good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who does not stumble over me, okay, who is not offended over me. Um, the, uh, where just because I don't meet all your expectations of what you think I should be doing, um, I'm doing something even greater than what you think. And you need to just, well, to use the language of the Psalms, wait on the Lord. You need to just wait and you need to see. Um, and uh, so John's messengers go, bring this back, uh, back message back to them, and he turns to the crowds who are with him, and he wants to talk to them about John. And he wants to teach them about the kingdom of God, right? And that here you have John, the forerunner of the Messiah, and and you all went out into the wilderness to, to meet him. And what did you go out to see? Did you Did you see a king dressed in soft clothing? Did you see somebody living in luxury, somebody pampered who has their every needs taken care of? No, you saw this rugged guy in the middle of the desert eating bugs and honey and and baptizing people for repentance. And think about how, you know, similar that is to the to the the question coming from John, right? Like um uh don't be disturbed by the fact that you don't see me sitting on a throne right now, okay? Um, nothing that's been happening of late should lead you to think that that is what God is doing, that, that God has just come uh, to give us health and wealth and prosperity here and now. No, there is a day in which I will reign gloriously, but that day has not yet come. In the meantime, the kingdom of God is here, and you need to be a part of that. And I tell you that, as for John, he says, none of those born of women is greater than John. Okay, so John is, uh, because of his role in redemptive history as the forerunner of the Messiah, as the one to call the, the, the people of Israel to repentance, um, as as preparation for, for, for the coming of Jesus— no one is greater than that, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So it's it's even better to be part of God's kingdom than it is to be John the Baptist. Um, and the, the people who are hearing this, including tax collectors, it says, um, declare God just, right? That Okay, and, and, and there, it's like, why, why that? Why declared God just? Well, because, again, the issues being, uh, being addressed here, both in Jesus' response to John's question as well as his address to the crowds here, have to do with the justness of God, right? Like, um, for all these times, you know, like the people who think that they're following the Lord and who are doing what, what, what God wants them to do, we don't see them... Uh, we don't see them receiving this overflowing blessing as if they're just showered by God's favor. No, often they're the ones who get the short end of the stick. There's John, right? He's in prison right now. And so the question of the justness of God is, is in question. But hearing this, it says that they understood and they declared God just. And, um, and, uh, but on the other hand, uh, 
you have Pharisees there, you have lawyers there, people who are experts in the law of Moses, um, who are rejecting the purpose of God for themselves. And and um, and this is epitomized, and they're not having even been baptized by John, right? Like they didn't even, they did not want to um, to partake in that um, because they're doing their own thing, and they think their masterful understanding of Torah, of the law of Moses, and of what they believe God wants them to do in that is is uh, is enough. That that, but the idea is that something greater than that is here now, and you have to be on board with that, and you have to be. And you need to respond appropriately to what God is doing. God is the one who takes the initiative in redemptive history. Um, and so this generation, at least those who don't hear, who who who, who do not understand this, uh, they're, we're, they're like those whom we play a flute for and don't dance, or those for whom we sing a dirge and they don't mourn. What's the idea there, right? Like that... that your that God is doing this thing. God is 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 here with Jesus. God is bringing His kingdom in through Christ, and 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 you're on a wholly diff, totally different page. You're thinking of different categories. No, God calls the tune. Right? Uh, it's going to be a flute now. It's going to be a dirge now. Uh, the same kind of thing. This is the same kind of thing that that Jesus was um, talking about with this the, the dispute over fasting, right? Why don't your disciples fast now? And he's like, there will be a time for that, but not now. Like, um, you need to understand. There's you, you're going to need some new new wine skins. You don't don't uh, put a piece of new cloth on an old garment. Okay, um, you need to be on the same page as God, and don't think that your masterful understanding of of uh, the scriptures um, excludes you from that, make puts you above that. No, God is doing a new thing, and He invites you to come. Um, and and will you? Will you be among those who follow Jesus and who become part of His kingdom and who build His kingdom, um, or will you be totally tone deaf to? Um, to the work, to the great work of God, to the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus. Okay, uh, a little bit of a long episode today. I apologize for that, but we did have a lot to cover. Um, As always, I thank you very much for joining me, and I look forward to being with you again tomorrow. So until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.